0: podcast one production. Hey guys, you're listening to Crappy to Happy. I'm Cass Dunn. I'm a clinical and coaching psychologist, a mindfulness meditation teacher and author of the Crappy to Happy books. In this series, we look at all of the factors that might be making you feel crappy and give you the tools and the techniques that will help you to overcome them. In each episode, I introduce you to interesting, inspiring, intelligent people who are experts in their field, and my hope is that they will help you feel less crappy and more happy. Today, I am so excited to be bringing you a very special bonus episode of Crappy to Happy. Claire Bowditch is well known in Australia for her singing, songwriting, her radio and television career, and she has just released her memoir, Your Own Kind of Girl. She's an absolutely incredible, delightful, amazing woman, and we covered so much in this interview. Here she is, Claire Bowditch. What a pleasure it is to have you in the studio for this super special bonus episode of Crappy the Happy. I feel very, very honoured, deeply honoured. Thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. We couldn't let the opportunity go by um, to have you come in and talk about primarily the new book. But we should mention, obviously, the fact that you're a very accomplished singer-songwriter. You have had a career in radio. You appeared in Offspring. I did, Very briefly. But yes, gosh, that was fun. Yes. And uh, you do a whole lot of other things as well, as well as being wife, mother to three. Of course, your latest gift to the world is
2: your brand new book, Your Own Kind of Girl. Which I finally finished. It only took 21 (laughs) or so years, maybe even longer. So yes, my book is Your Own Kind of Girl and it's named after a song that I wrote in 2008 of the same title. Thank God it's over, my friend. Oh my gosh. 2008, you wrote the song...
0: Claire, can we just launch straight into the book? Because I've been reading it and I absolutely love it. Thank you
2: so much. It means a lot. Thank you.
0: First of all, you did say that you decided at 21 you were going to write this book?
2: Yes, that's right.
0: And can you just explain sort of what... Uh, well, I guess yeah. basically, like what took
2: so long? What the heck? <laughs> been a very busy lady, what with my three demanding <laughs> children and my big career. Um, look, here's the truth of it. I, when I was 21 years old, I had what many of your listeners and one in four Australians will have, which is I had a really acute episode of mental ill health. And that happened when I was overseas in London, supposed to be having the time of my life. Oh my God, it was the opposite. Um, and just to give a quick context, You know, it took obviously about 20 years to work out how to tell this story. So I do it better in the book. But um, just to put it into context for our dear listener, I went overseas with a broken heart. You know, I had been with a chap who I adored for many years and we were in that silly, codependent, young relationship where you probably should have let each other go a little while ago and you didn't. Um, And the breakup in the end was brutal and I was very, very hurt and I said, my God, I'm going to go overseas. Stuff is all. I'm going overseas. I'm going to start my brand new, amazing life. And I was also something that I wasn't saying out loud at the time, but I was um, trying very hard from a very young age to always be thin. And I wasn't thin. And I thought it really mattered that I go on a diet and lose weight. And the voice in my head was very cruel. And, you know, I can see now quite clearly I wasn't well. But I went on a quite an extreme diet overseas. It triggered panic response in me and mm. I stopped sleeping and I stopped actually then being able to eat and I became very unwell. And home I came with my tail between my legs and I thought my life is over. I hadn't even begun I was working in a call centre. I, I had all these big fat dreams. I had this list of this amazing life I was supposed to be living and I was in the meantime just hiding. I didn't want anyone to know my dreams. I thought big girls like me don't get to live these kind of dreams. So I had a whole lot of cruel inner voice going on and what it was clearly just, you know, good bog standard anxiety. <laughs> I came home and it took me a while to work out what that was. But in my recovery, and it was a good... Slow but good recovery. So that's the the message that I always get out there. I never had to go back to that place again, Um, not in the same way, because I learnt to manage it. And in that recovery I promised myself one day if I do get well when I'm really, really old, I'm going to write this book. And really, really old was 40. (laughs) And here we are. (laughs) So, look, I finally did write it. And so for that reason it's not a celebrity memoir. It's not about, um, you know, the wonderful touring and adventures and naughty things that happen behind the scenes, it's about being a human being who wants to live a big life and wondering how the hell do you do that? And I'm so glad that you did write the book because your
0: story is so, I mean, it's deeply personal, but it's also universal in some ways. Would you agree? The story, you talk about the stories we tell ourselves. That's Mm -hmm. a theme throughout the book. Yes. And that is like, we've all got these stories that we tell ourselves.
2: Correct. So yes, I do think I do think that these are very common stories, and we don't like to speak about them in their detail too much because we think that we're weird or that you know we're especially broken or something. What the truth is, we as human beings we are storytelling beasts. That's mm. part of our survival mechanism. Our old brain, our our lower brain, um, you know, our survival brain is carried across generations. And it's there to keep us safe. And it tells us stories about how we're unsafe and how we need to belong. And those can be very useful in certain situations. But day to day in the modern, <laughs> the modern era, um, we're tempted always to forget we do also have a higher brain. We have the ability to tell ourselves better stories. Now, I, I realize that I can't control circumstances, but what my my you know, the greatest gift, I guess, of this really quite a terrible experience um, as a young person was realising that I do have some say in the second story I tell myself. I like that.
0: And Claire, the other thing that you pointed out, like one of the big stories and it's a theme also throughout the book is this idea, and you just said it then, um, b- big girls can't have amazing lives. They can't have big dreams. And there's this, I mean, you were obviously blessed with a beautiful um, uh, singing voice and songwriting ability and, you know, amazing talent, intelligence. But there Keep was this going, story. Darling, that there was this oh, story. i but this
2: But the most important <laughs> thing about you was the size of your body. Correct. So that was a story I told myself. And to be very clear, this is not a true story, but it's yes. not a story that I made up on my own. Nice. These are the stories that we absorb from the society around us and they're just a very normal, again, a really normal part of um, an, a very normal thing to pick up in a commercialised society where we're constantly presented with fantasies about our better life and, you know, our, <clears throat> our magical um, future selves when in those advertisements the women don't look like me. They certainly don't. Um, there were certainly no role models in my Young life, besides, you know, perhaps Miss Piggy and hi, you know, there was that <laughs> kind of strong role model. But there was no one I felt who looked like me or had, I always felt too much, you know, I had too much spilling over. And what I picked up from society, and I know that this is deeply, deeply common, and we, I'm just going to articulate it. The message I picked up as a kid with a, in a, in a big, big, healthy body, actually a healthy, strong body. The message I picked up was that body was wrong, that that people who won in life were the ones who could contain their body size, could contain their feelings, could contain their ageing. And, you know, ageing wasn't an issue then because I was just a kid, but mm. I knew, you know, there was a voice in my head that said, you're doing it wrong and there's no place for people like you. And that competed with this longing that I had to sing and to share stories and to connect with people and to ask questions. So, you know, that, that is the story that I wanted to write, um, just really as a, as a tale of, of um, hope and encouragement.
0: Yes. And you're quite right. I I'm similar age to you, and so growing up, especially you in know the eighties in, in the nineties,
2: twenty, thirty, exactly.
0: <laughs> in uh. the nineties. You're right. It was the supermodel kind of era. yeah. Everybody, every, yeah. it was every diet, uh, the, w-
2: the most weird, wacky. Can we just go through a list? I don't know about oh. you. I did every diet, and and I want to say you know we know now under a health at every size framework that these. You know that diets are really, if we want to be healthy, um, you know, we this is not the way to go. Extreme measures is not the way to go. It is not the way to go. I didn't know that as a kid. I went on my first serious diet at the age of a very young age, and with under a doctor's supervision, I lost a dramatic amount of weight, and then I was trapped in a cycle for the rest of my teenage years of wanting to get back to this fantastical weight, which included, can I just say it? So there was like the cabbage soup diet, mm-hmm. uh, not the Israeli diet, but um, the, the Israeli military diet was, was one that was popular at the time. It was all the ones in the magazines. It was the Atkins. It was the... Um, Beverly Hills diet. Beverly Hills diet, thank you. There was the um, WW more than once, many, many times. I was always very proud that I didn't go to Gloria Marshall, but I think that's mainly because I just couldn't afford it, really. So there were just these dozens of diets and I I say it playfully because god you know there are many women in society and now increasingly men who have been there as well mm. I just wish along the way that someone had known to tell me that there is an alternative that you don't actually have to be any particular size to live your dreams in the world mm. that when I'm thin I'm not better than when I'm fat and when I'm fat I'm not wrong you know, mm. th- this is just, I, I have a, what I like to call my piano accordion body and it sings its little song and it goes up and down the scales depending on whether I'm giving birth <laughs> in that particular mm. year or whether I'm going through, you know, anxiety or stress and I'm I'm leaning on food or, you know, whether I'm happy and on holidays. So I'm I'm at peace with that now, but it took me a really long time. Tell me about you. Have you always been, because um, you're, you're a registered psychologist, so yes. and I know that perhaps you don't want to you know, be talking about your own story too much, but I am really curious. Look at you turning it back, interviewing oh, no. the interviewer. Well, um, well I so, feel less well, alone when I hear other women talk. Yeah. It, so.
0: I, um, uh, yeah, I've talked about it a little bit before growing up in that era, and especially, like you said, adults around us modelled that behaviour, so we very much, uh, I too, absorbed that message that this was the this was what you got you approval and validation, this is what was attractive, this is what this is how you needed to look. And I was um I can I I had what I would call an eating disorder, uh not otherwise specified to use psychological lingo N O S Ednaught. Yeah, <laughs> eating disorder, NOS, is yeah. what it's called. It's when you don't have anorexia, you don't have bulimia, you know, you don't have a binge eating disorder, mm-hmm. but you have a very, very, very unhealthy relationship with food. And can I say, I came to that point having put on, having done a. Uh, a crash diet. It was the Scarsdale
2: medical diet. For God's sake, yes. Did you do that one? Oh, look, I didn't, but it was there. It was waiting for me. Yeah. And
0: I'd lost a lot of weight in two mm, weeks. Like, mm, And I mean shocking. five kilos or six kilos or something. I was never particularly... Overweight, I was always probably a very normal healthy weight, but I lost a lot, but I had the idea that I was too fat. Mm. Um, I was always too fat. And mm. we were all too, all too fat. We all needed to be thinner. And so I no matter how what you weighed, you <laughs> yeah, always needed right. to be that's thinner. Right. Yeah. And so I, I did that. And I lost a lot of weight. I was at the time, at uni, I was working jobs on my feet all day, and I just kept this low weight. Mm. and then I got my first full-time job where I was sitting at a desk for, from nine to five. And I put on two,
2: I think two kilos, two whole kilos. For those of who, you who've never weighed yourself, look, in the context of a human being, that's not a lot of weight. And I became obsessed with how I needed to lose those two kilos because
0: that was, I needed to get back to like the, the, the you know, the, the good, the ideal weight. Yeah. I was like 60, unquote. I was 64 kilos and I needed to be 62 or something. Um, which is very thin. I'm 173 centimetres tall and... I, I became obsessed. I literally, like I measured, weighed everything that I put into my mouth for probably two years mm, at mm, least mm. or more. It, it got in the way of everything. So I've definitely,
2: I've definitely been there. I mm. re- resonate strongly. <laughs> and we we understand too, to you listening, we understand that as we're talking about this, if you're anything like me, you know, these conversations can be quite triggering. We compare ourselves to each other. You know, I did this, I did that. Is this right? Is that not? Um, that story is so strong in us of wanting to belong and wanting to be enough, and it's only natural and normal that our brains can get trapped in these cycles. But what you just described then of that, you know, that we forget how clever our brain is. If Mm. we are not eating enough and if we are putting an extreme amount of pressure on ourselves, there is a healthy part of our brain that says excuse my language, this is bullshit, you know, friggin' eat something. And then Mm -hmm. we very naturally overeat then and then we accuse ourselves of overeating we can get caught in this terrible ping pong that for some of us, myself included, lasted for years. And because I didn't look thin uh, or, you know, fat or I was just kind of quite, you know, just I was not so extreme on either side that anyone around me went, ah, she has an eating disorder. We did not know. In the eighties and nineties, and that, and even in the noughties, that you don't, you can't look at someone and tell whether or not they've got a wacky relationship with food, no. or whether they're suffering because of their relationship with food. Yeah, and so that can take so long to unpack. I think we don't. Again, I think most people at some point in their life will have some struggle with something that is in this realm of. You know, it's a tricky secret using something to cope and you're in there on your own. What we don't often talk about is the way we use diets to cope. We talk about using food to cope. But for me, if I look back at my, you know, my childhood self and my early 20s self, diets offered this story of hope, real potential hope that one day when I got thin, my real life would begin and I would have permission to shine in the world. And it took me a long time to realise that I have permission to shine anytime I want to shine. Yes, <laughs> you know, that's the, the message. And it is, you know, the, we're all scared of criticism. My, m- what I'm seeing more and more is it's really me who criticises myself more than anyone else. And that's why I named my inner critic. Oh. Ah. That, that's right. So I named my inner critic Frank in the 20s and started telling my inner critic to F off Frank. Foff. That was my thing. And that has been the secret of my success. And you're welcome to take it. And I apologise to anyone called Frank. (laughs) You can call your critic anything you like. But when that awful voice would come up, I would say, hang on a minute. No, get in the corner. You know, that voice is just there to try to protect us. And it sometimes goes a bit rogue. So we're the adults in the room. We get to tell it where to go. I
0: think that's a really good point, Claire, that we have to not be... Um, almost cr- critical of our self-criticism. We need to understand. <laughs> you know, yes. it's about it's understanding great. that that is our, in some wacky, you know, dysfunctional way, it is our brain's way of trying to keep us safe. Yes, and it thinks it's it thinks it's being helpful. Yes, and yeah. we just have to yep. be able to kind of be- befriend that inner kind of mean yeah or whatever. yeah um, like don't you're not needed here. I understand you're trying to keep me safe, mm. but rather than getting at that cycle of getting down on ourselves
2: for our self, <laughs> judgment, Spot on. you know yeah and and look, as we talk about this, you know, we're talking about it in an hour, uh, you know less than an hour of a podcast in a minute and we we're, we're saying these things out loud. I understand, and I know you do too, that in reality we leave these things out through our lives. they sound really simple. They're not because we forget them all the time. So every day Mm. I get about 39,000 opportunities to remind myself that my life is made up of the stories I tell myself and which ones I choose to believe. I think diagnosis with mental health is so useful in that acute period and it can be really useful and it's imperative that we get help, professional help. But day-to-day we're the ones living with ourselves and I was able to start thinking about my quirks you know, these places where I had so much restlessness in me, I wanted to sing songs on stage. What a crazy thing to want to do. You know, that's part of my quirk too. And just learning to own it is is an everyday process that is available to all of us. Yes.
0: And, Claire, speaking of therapy, you in the <laughs> book you talked about you first saw a psychologist at quite an early age. Yes, Was I did. Was it
2: 12, for no, 14? it was, um, well, it was 15. 15. And it was, she was, uh, well, let's put, so I'll explain a, a little bit of backstory. Mm.
0: Um,
2: again, you know, these days we're, we're speaking from the year 19, no, we're speaking from the year 2019. <laughs> Where am I? What? I'm in a dark room. <laughs> um, so I would say that these days we are, we live in a, a, in a governmental healthcare system that does... Allow us to access a psychologist, you know, through our GP. That's really, really wonderful and important. That system's only been in play for maybe five, maybe 10 years, somewhere in between there. Before that, it was quite unusual to put your hand up and go, I'd like to see a therapist, please. You know, these were seen as shameful things to want to do. You know, you just, we had that Aussie come on, get on with it, stop being so soft kind of vibe in general. But when I was a kid, um, I'm the youngest of five, and my older sister, Rowena, two years older than me, um, wonderful and glorious and bright and brilliant young woman who became very ill, lived in the children's hospital for two years on life support because she had a very rare illness, um, very rare, it's kind of like a rare form of MS, and she passed away. and This was my normal and in there there was so much love and life and hope and community but it also left a lot of, you know, there's a long tail with childhood grief and it left me with a lot of things to try and work out. And it may be one of the reasons why this critical survival brain was so loud in me so young. So by the time I was 15 and I thought I was just really crap at diets, I thought, Failure at diets, and I guess by this stage, you know, my mum had twigged that something was going on, and she sent me to my first psychologist, who I call Annika in the book. And um, I wish I had stayed in Annika's care because she she was very she was a specialist in in childhood eating disorders. And again, you know, I didn't, I wasn't really aware I had an eating disorder. I thought I was just bad at dieting. And I saw her for a series of sessions and so many emotions came up for me that I said, no, this is not for me. I sort of pretended she didn't know, you know, I said to my mom, oh no, this is all a bit silly And, and I didn't go back again to a psychologist until my... Until I had my nervous breakdown at the age of 21, really. Mm. But she, you know, she taught, she tried to teach me to meditate and to observe myself. And in observing myself, I found out that I was a little bit weird and I didn't like that feeling. Oh, really? Yeah. It's... A little bit weird, meaning that she sort of pointed out that maybe my relationship with food might have something to do with seeking security or maybe the fact that I liked to tap my feet or have particular quirks to keep me, um, I thought they were just funny little quirks, things I did with my hands or feet or word games in my head. Yeah, I thought they were just um, sweet little things that I did and everyone did them. And she started pointing out to me, everyone does do them, but, you know, some of us do them more than others and sometimes they're a sign that we need a little support. I just didn't like hearing that. So off I went did that stay with you though
0: you know was in the even though you didn't stay with that process did yes. that stay with you and help you
2: absolutely and now track? i can yeah. yeah now i can look back and she was telling me that i, I was experiencing a, a, you know symptoms of ocd yeah which is uh, and you know which might have had something to do with ptsd which might have had something to do with my gad whatever the names yeah. that you call yeah. these these um you know feelings and experiences we have they were really helpful just to contextualise it. Um, and I've been able to draw back on that. I actually sent her a copy of the book. We're still in, in contact just a tiny little bit through a friend. And oh, I wow. wanted, yeah, I did want her to know that even though we only saw each other briefly, she did set me on the path of asking myself questions. Yeah. You know, I'm sure
0: that would have meant so much to her.
2: I could. I hope so.
0: <laughs> yeah. And, and, and Claire, and I'm so glad that you mentioned that, like that you included that, those little, the tapping and the word games, because I think a lot of people have got little things like that, mm. that they don't recognize as being little security, mm. controly little compulsive quirks that, you know, they, they, they serve a, they serve a kind of a purpose, but so much of that's like, it's just our humanness, right? Correct. But, but we don't necessarily identify readily that mm, maybe that's what that's about. These
2: might be little, well, they're almost like little messages from ourself, you know, to ourself. And the way she spotted it was she'd asked me to talk about my sister, about Rowie and what had happened. And I'd always told myself, you know, I'd sort of accepted a childhood version of grief, which is, you know, there was something, I, I, Jean Piaget calls it this age of magical thinking where our identity is forming at the age of, you know, five, seven. I still seven. I'd always thought there was something I could have done that I didn't do to save her. Now, this is a common story of grief. It's really common. I didn't speak it. I didn't know to speak it. I just had this bad feeling in me like I'd done something wrong and I didn't know what it was. As I was talking about my sister, I started doing a tapping game with my lip and I didn't realise I was doing it. And that's, you know, this is the gift of an observant therapist. She said to me, what are you doing with your hands? And I said, nothing, you know, nothing. Why? And she said, well, you're doing a little tapping thing. You know, I was doing a pattern in my head and I... Something to point out here is a small adjunct. You know, I'm a songwriter. I deal in rhythms. These quirks that we have aren't always terrible, horrible things at all. Sometimes they can be channeled into our gifts. But I wasn't there yet. I was just having a little tap and singing a song in my head to comfort me and soothe me, I guess, as I was talking about my sister. So she pointed it out and she said have a little look through the week, see if you have other habits. And I said, I don't think I do. Well, I came back with a whopper of a list, didn't I? A good good red hot whopper. All the little funny things I did, like standing under the shower for six seconds, exactly six, because six is my lucky number and blah, 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 blah. Now, nobody knows these things about us. But since I wrote this book, I've had quite a number of people come up and say, I do that funny little thing too. And you're right. You would see this as a therapist, you would see this and know exactly what it is. These are these ways that we comfort ourselves. And, you know, some of them are harmless, but they're, they're messages. Like I'm doing a bit of tapping on this promotional tour, you know, with the, with the um, talking about this book. It's quite hard to go back into this space and I'm aware all the time that I've got these shared stories. I'm talking about our family but I'm just one member of a really big family and it's tough to lose someone in your family and the, the only reason I would go back and talk about it is because I have something I do have a – I think it's a useful – I hope it's a hopeful story to tell. But it's not so, you know, there are parts of it that are not so easy to read at the beginning and that's our life, isn't it? Mm.
0: Was it um, healing for you? I just really Mm. observed in that first part of the book, you did such a beautiful job of describing that experience. Um, But through, I'll get emotional talking about it now. Mm. (laughs) Hey, making me emotional. Bloody hell. (laughs) Through the eyes of a child. And as children, we don't make sense of those things. And, you know, like you said, there was just this badness and there was this shame. But to go back and put yourself in that position again, and was, was, was that in some way healing for you? Like you were mm. almost reparenting yourself through that process. That's what it felt like to me. That's what it would
2: almost be like. It's really moving for me to to hear you ask that question, to hear you. And I know that, um, you know, that, yeah, I know that so many of us as little people feel this stuff. And that is why I wanted to go back in again because it was healing because I have still carried this horrific set of feelings. And I've done so much in my life to try and channel that into my work Um, But to be here and be able to say these things out loud with you and to know that I'm not alone in that really is this this process now, this conversation that we're having today and that I'm getting to have now with other people, I'm finding that healing because it's giving purpose to – yeah, it's giving purpose to – To having said it out loud. Yeah. And that's why it took so long. You asked at the beginning, you know, we were in a lighter mood then and you asked at the beginning why did it take so long to write and that is, this is the truth of it, that I knew I had to be strong and steady in order to go out and speak about this stuff.
0: But at the same time, we're all kind of always a work in progress. I also get that sense that, you know, like I'll write this when I'm when I've dealt with this, then I'll talk about it. Like when I'm when I'm fixed this, then I'll talk about it. We never kind of quite get to that fixed. (laughs) Oh, gosh, no, not at all. I hope you're enjoying season four of the show. And hey, I would love for you to check out my brand new YouTube channel where I'm sharing even more tips on how you can feel less crappy and more happy. It's youtube.com forward slash Cast Done. So come over, check it out. I'd love for you to subscribe. And if you haven't already taken my free seven-day happiness challenge, you can sign up for that at castdun.com forward slash happiness.
2: I did a television show yesterday and it was wonderful show, but I had about two and a half minutes at the end to talk about this experience. And, you know, it came after this sort of package, you know, when they package up your your life um, in 30 seconds to explain who you are to an audience who are at home and may never have heard of you. And... Um, Gosh, I walked off feeling so wobbly with all the same old stories about how I didn't do it right and I said the wrong thing too. I sort of was trying to tell a story about how my parents always taught me it was our insides that matter, not our outsides. But instead I said on national television, (laughs) my parents taught me that it's my outsides that matter, not my insides. And nobody pulled me up on it because the clock was ticking and we were all about to go out, Um, you know, the next show was coming. And so... It's you know I'm still, taught I I would be tempted to torture myself about that and I did have a, a little bit of torturing myself but now that I've spoken about my frank and now that my family and friends and my husband and you know everyone knows now I've said it out loud we can we can have a community of friends who can remind us I still need that reminder all the time that I'm just doing my best I was yeah. always we will always have a frank when I say I'm cured from acute anxiety, I mean that I never had to go back to that wall upon wall upon wave upon wave of panic attack in which I couldn't function. Mm. Never had to go back there. But that doesn't mean I'm not always managing my sensitive, creative nature.
0: And I think that's, that's, that's a, there's a gift in that lesson too, isn't it? Like, I can't remember what the the exact quote is, but it's like, you're allowed to be, you're a masterpiece and a work in progress all at the same time. I don't remember the, who said the quote and I've probably got it wrong, but
2: you know that quote. Do you know when you said that, I was thinking, I was thinking, God, I, don't, I don't know that I, uh, what did I say that? Did I, cause I'm, that sounds really like a good thing to say, but I was flicking <laughs> through my book secretly here going, where is that quote? No, not not, no, you, not your amazing. quote, somebody else's <laughs> quote. I don't remember who said it. But it was, you know, this is, yeah, we are. We are all things. Um, I I write in a chapter of my book, it's called Storms and Other Weather Patterns, and I try to have a little stab at this concept that we don't really understand a whole lot, if we're going to be really, really honest, we don't understand a whole lot yet about treating and managing mental ill health. Because so often we fail to include in the conversation not just the storm, not just the the weather, you know, the the weather pattern, the the hail, the 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 awful bit, but also the other part of it, the sunshine, the rainbow, um, you know, the the part that allows us to connect more deeply with human beings as well. And I, you know, we don't even know why so many mental Ill- illnesses. Are like Venn diagrams, you know, this one oh, and the yeah. other one, they all share these set of symptoms. And often in a, you know, in a medicalised model, which is very useful, you know, um, for, for many people, the medications that we give to people who are experiencing mental health are often the same for different diagnoses and what else is true is that it might work for one person, it doesn't for another. And I guess I say all of this by way of saying, A, it's really important to have a good professional who cares about you on your team. But B, there's so much we don't know yet. And we, we're having a conversation today and in the world about where, where is the Venn diagram between what we call genius or brilliance or, you know, our higher selves and what we call mental ill health. And, and and it's going to be an ongoing conversation and it must be. But, you know, what really helped me um, was not finding a name for what was wrong with me in terms of a clear diagnosis, but was a little book by a lady called Dr. Claire Weeks where she just lumped it all under the topic of nervous suffering. And she was an old Australian, you know, post-war A progressive front runner. She's the first woman in Australia to get a doctorate um, from the Sydney University, and she had this. She was a GP with a technique that helped people with what she called nervous suffering. That is what helped me so much. Just one little book that said. Uh, this is just a normal, natural thing that your body's going through. You might feel sensitive, weird, shaky. She went through the list of symptoms and I finally went, oh my gosh, yes, that's me. Mm. I'm not nuts. I'm actually going through a human experience and I'm going to get well. That's... Uh, common humanity, I think. I think that's what is really
0: is such a gift in your book as well, because it's the gift of humanity of knowing that you're not the only one, you know, that other people have experienced similar things. Even the the way that you describe the voice in your head, because we all have the same voice. And like you said, we don't Mm -hmm. speak it out loud. And we all think that's something weird and quirky about me. And you wouldn't ever share that with somebody. But when you do... Suddenly everybody says, oh, yeah, I say that, yeah, that sounds
2: exactly like the voice in my head. (laughs) One of the things that helped me call it out too, and I'm going to, you know, I say this carefully um, because I'm going to talk about parenthood just for a sec, if that's okay, and... Mm. I know that for many people you might want to be a parent and you don't get to be or for many others you have no interest in being a parent and you're just sick of people always crapping on about it all the time. So neither, you know, but i I love I've, that disclaimer. <laughs> yep. I feel for both of those things because I'm going to yes. just talk about my experience in a way. One of the things that made me feel brave was having something to be brave for and that could be almost anything, you know, something that's meaningful and for me this this... It was the age of 27 that I got really gutsy about my career because I knew then I was going to, I was 26 actually and I was going to become a mum and I thought I can't be the only woman who's had this struggle and I can't be the only woman, you know, the fact that I wasn't hearing my voice on radio or seeing it on TV or et cetera, et cetera, it occurred to me that maybe that wasn't. Maybe that was just because I hadn't counted myself in yet. Maybe I just had to get out there and do it. And knowing that I was about to give birth made me get on with it, you know, and it made, made me fiercer with Frank, telling Frank to just POQ, please. I remember the first time I was ever on TV and... You know, I just wanted to run, 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 run for the hills. Um, I was on a TV show. It was actually Paris and Nicky Hilton were guests on the show. I had no idea who they were. It was Roy and HG. Um, The manager of Nicky and Paris said, you know, thought that they were being spoken to disrespectfully. There was all this hoo-ha going on. He was about to pull the show And we are about to – we'd just gotten on the show because our friend Jake worked on the show and somebody had cancelled and he said, get down to the studio, you know, you can be on TV for the first time. So off we went. Look, every bone in my body wanted to (laughs) just hide under a rock. Um, Everything told me I was going to do it wrong. But I was able to draw on my bravery because I thought, I'm just going to try and be an example in the world of, you know, someone who gave it a crack. I don't want to wake up at 50 and say I didn't give it a crack. And it was kind of that simple. So if anyone's listening and they're wondering whether or not, you know, they have the, they have what it takes to give it a crack, look, you pro- you might not, but why not give it a go? <laughs> have a crack anyway. <laughs> yeah. Then we'll work it out. We'll work it out as you go along.
0: <laughs> um, Claire, I just wanted to ask you too, we talked, just going all the way back to we talked about that 80s, 90s kind of diet culture, and you know, w- without going into all the detail, you know, you went on a diet at a young age, lost oh, yeah. a lot of weight, and yeah. got a lot of approval and validation, you know, from school teachers and friends' parents. And so yes. it's, you know, it's really, you can understand why yeah. we absorb the message yeah. that thin is good. But do you think much has changed? You, you mm-hmm. have, obviously, but on, in our society, do you think we're moving fast enough to, I... like, to
2: change that? Mm-hmm. Society, I think it's extraordinary to be where we are in society. The fact that you and I, two women, get to have this conversation here today and there's this thing called the internet upon which this conversation will be uploaded and anyone, anywhere in the entire universe, a world, sorry, let's just say Earth, (laughs) well maybe more who knows <laughs> anyone anywhere could listen to it with the technology to listen to it that's wild and that reminds me we've got half a chance um, mm. in a way that we did not in a mainstream society where there was no internet you know so the once again the fact that we have conversational and and um, structured rigorous research-based frameworks like health at every size um, and we have universities uh, still you know sort of, able to do research into the nature of our body, our ability to, to um, deal with weight and so on. Um, and deal with weight meaning why does somebody, you know, why did me and my brother eat the same amount and I put on weight and he didn't? Um, you know, these things all give me hope. It might be that I have a special ability to survive. You know, at the moment in our current uh, conversation around what we call obesity, we don't have much positive stuff in there. Um the truth is, as a pretty healthy, happy woman whose weight does change, um, you know, I the challenge is to be kind to ourselves through all of our different iterations. Yes. And so you, your question was really, have we changed enough and are we in a good place with it? Um, of course we've got a long way to go, you know, I st- in, in all different areas of representation. Um, we are still a very narrow culture when it comes to which voices we elevate and which yeah. voices we don't who we allow to climb up the ranks and who we don't and this plays itself out in politics in the arts in yeah. everywhere you know in every in every working environment and in every cultural environment in countries and everywhere power is this is this is a conversation we can have so you can see I, I never think about my body anymore in the context of one little woman who goes into you know, your local department store and can't quite find a size there. It's so much (laughs) bigger than that for me. Um, It's about whose voices we allow to be heard. And um, so I don't, of course, we're not there yet. Of course, we've got a long way to go. But I am pleased that at the very least I can tell a story like this out loud and we get to have a conversation about it.
0: Oh, I'm so glad that you did. And what a great reminder too, and for me as well, that we all have a responsibility to use our voices and our platforms to make sure that we are elevating the conversation.
2: Yeah, and even if we're not, like, can we at least make it interesting, guys? You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, because <laughs> sometimes in this pursuit too of, of trying to be better and more and so on, we really, you know, we forget how to have a bit of fun as well. So, yeah. So, um you know, I, I like to, I like to think that life is for living, and we know that life is pretty short, and we don't want to waste it worrying that you know we don't fit here, or we don't fit there. I, I really look forward to people being. I mean, I love a bit of a bold, a bold woman or a man at the dinner party, or a human being at the dinner party. Um, what about you? You know, like honestly, this is the, you Had- know the rogue, the like. When someone walks into your clinic and you're like, I don't know what to make of you, that must be fascinating. Every, I find everybody fascinating. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you can do what you do.
0: Um, yeah. Yeah, I do. I find, every, I find people fascinating. Mm. I love having the opportunity outside of the clinic. You know, I, I love this opportunity to speak to so many people about so many interesting topics. I want to make sure that everybody knows not only is your book Fabulous, and I haven't finished reading it yet. But in my attempt to get it closer to finished, before I had the chance to talk to you, I downloaded the audio. I, I downloaded the audio book, and I listened to it in the car on the way here. Thank you. And I want everybody to get the audio version of this book. The fact that you have the, the connection of the the story to the song, the fact that you've actually played the lyrics, the old tapes from your childhood, and you know the the fact that you've actually. Edited in, like subbed in the actual tapes. It's just, <laughs> it's
2: stunning. You've done such a
0: beautiful job. Oh my Claire.
2: gosh, guys, it means so much to me because my goodness, the um, the, the you know this story is a story of some of the origins of the songs, and when it came to recording the audiobook, my husband Marty, who's my producer, and and you know this, we we didn't really get to it, but there is this element of our love story in there. And it had to be because he was my bandmate and, you know, our love story was not very straightforward. It was quite a curious one and quite a, you know, fortunate one in some ways, but I'll leave that for the book. The two of us said, let's do this together. We'll go to our little home studio out in the Burbs in Melbs. And we sat down and honestly, we, we thought this was going to be a walk in the park and just sit down and read the book, you know that's what I do. i read the book. It's fine. Oh, the struggles I had with A, trying to do silly things like get my mother's accent and B, not weep and weep, you know, as I went through mm. these emotional bits. And um, it, really, it really was a very big project. And you're the first person I've spoken to who's heard it. And it just means the world to me that you enjoyed it. Thank you so, oh, so much. I would tell
0: anybody, buy the book for sure, but also listen to the book.
2: It's it's amazing. Maybe we could do a two for one. I wish I wish I had control over these things. I so appreciate it. One of the funnest things about recording the book was getting my mum in, and because you know, f off Frank, there's a swear word in there, and my mum's a pretty um, gorgeous and straight up human being, Dutch, and she she was in the studio. We wanted to do some extra things, like like add Mum's Dutch apple tart recipe, you know, to the end of the book. I haven't and, got there yet. <laughs> yeah, you haven't got you got that to look forward to. And I also wanted to, you know, just just. To be sure that we were not leaving people with nowhere to go, I, I, I got my friend, Dr. Charlotte Keating, who's a wonderful psychologist, to come and help me write a, a letter at the end to anyone who's still struggling or anyone who needs further resources. So I wanted to make sure that was all there. But we got my mum in to read the Dutch apple tart recipe and while while she was there, I also got her to do the language warning <laughs> at the top of the book. And um, my mother speaks like this, but she's she's... Anyway, it just cracked me up. It was very special to be able to get her in there and give her a little roll to tell everyone that her, mom, her daughter is a swear bear. And, <laughs> um, you know, if you've got kids around, maybe keep that in, in mind. But thank you so much, Kez. It's been a real honour and pleasure to be here. It's such a beautiful, beautiful thing that you're doing in the world. Thank you. Thank you,
0: Claire. It has been my absolute privilege. Thank you so much for making the time and um, everybody go and get the book. <laughs> Lots of love. thank you so much for listening and you guys thank you so much also for the feedback i'm already getting on season four please keep it coming i get lots of suggestions for topics that you would like me to cover i do receive all of your emails and we do file them all and we will do our very best to cover the topics that are important to you don't forget also that my YouTube channel has launched. Thank you all for coming and subscribing. It's youtube.com forward slash cast I'll see you over there. If you like this show, please do go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating and a review. And of course, I always love to hear your feedback directly. You can email me at hello at Cass dot com. I read all of the emails. I cannot wait to be back with another season. Crappy to Happy is a Podcast One Australia production produced by Dave Walensky and with audio by Darcy Thompson. For more great podcasts, head to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or download the app. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks...